All right, say once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. I heard some of you say neither halftime. I heard some of you just are not, are just you're happy the Patriots aren't not in it. So um, you're like, I'm just happy they're not in it. That's terrible. Hey, uh, welcome. Welcome to Exchange. I am so glad that you guys are here. Do me a favor and turn to Jonah chapter 2. We are in the book of Jonah. It's our third week. We're in Jonah 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we have some Bible passer-outers coming around, but we are in Jonah chapter 2. So excited for this. Um, hey, I don't know if you noticed our, our new decorations. This is, this is great, by the way. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes we forget this is an elementary school. Our team does such a good job just making this feel homey, right? Can we just give up for our team that just sets up every week, week in, week out? Maybe we'll keep this. I don't know. Looks good. Um, Hey, I want to, in case you are new, I just want to uh, just say again, hi, welcome. My name is Josiah. I would love to meet you after. I know we have, uh, today is something special we do every other month. It's called Connect Sunday. Uh, this is where when church is immediately over and we share with you guys, say, bye, have a great weekend. Right out this back door, turn left. And there's a little hallway. We have some food and snacks. If you've been coming for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, and you feel like, I don't know anyone yet, or I want to meet people, I want to hear more about groups, or how to get involved, or serve, or just want to hear more about what is the exchange, um, you can just turn left out this hallway, and then right after, there'll be some key leaders there to meet you, to say what's up, and just to welcome you, and kind of answer any questions you have, and share a little bit. So we have some food and stuff back there. So please, when search is over, if you are new or newer, just turn left right out the hallway, and you'll see them there. Uh, Connect Sunday. Also, I want to point this out. We have some very just uh, very talented, creative people at our church who uh, for the last couple months have been designing some new shirts and hoodies and uh, long sleeves for us. Um, and so I'm wearing one right now. We just want you to know that there's some like uh, merchandise back there. The reason for this is any proceeds we're going to put to local missions and international missions. And so um, just to try to increase that budget if we can. Uh, but if you'd like to rep a, a shirt from the exchange or a sweater or hood, anything, just go back there and uh, there'll be someone back there to help help you out with that. So that's fun. I love that we get to see people use their gifts in different ways like designing a shirt. So cool. Um, hey, so we're in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Let me kind of uh, explain where we're at, what's going on, what's the point of chapter 2 today before we get into it. So as you guys might know, it's a very famous story, very well-known story. It's a story that I think that people misunderstand even the big truths behind it. Here's the general idea. In chapter 1, God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the Assyrian capital. It was a very, very wicked city. God's like, I want you to go to them and preach to them repentance. I want them to know me, believe me, believe in me, love me, serve me. Uh, just so you know, the Assyrians and the Israelites had a lot of history. The Assyrians were very cruel. They were known for skinning people alive and laying the skins over their city walls. They are known for just terrible ways of torture, especially to the Jewish people. So God says, go to this city, and I want you to tell them about me. That would be like, as we've shared previously, that would be like sending a Jewish rabbi into maybe a Holocaust camp and saying, call those German guards to repentance. I, I really want you to understand the weight of that. They're going, there's, Jonah's going, there's no way. So Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh. And then we read in chapter one, he gets on a boat and goes to Tarshish. It's a fun word that I've had a, a lot of hard time saying. He goes to Tarshish. Now we've shown a picture of the map just so you get the idea. Uh, he goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction, or at least he's on his route that far away uh, to, the, to the end of the world, their known world that time. Jonah's like, I'm not going there. So if you remember, there's a great storm. Jonah basically says to the fishermen, hey, throw me over and the storm will stop. And then this is where we took off, or less off last week, where basically they threw him over. A giant fish swallows Jonah, and now we are in chapter 2. 
Now, I know, again, I want to just say this. I know people struggle with the story of Jonah. Like, is this a parable? Is this an analogy? Did this really happen? Uh, Jesus quotes from this book in Matthew chapter 12 as this is a historical, real person, real event. Jonah's also mentioned in 2 Kings 14 as this is not just a parable or a story. People are like, I really have a hard time with the idea of a fish swan a guy. I get it. Um, but I want to say if God can speak the world into existence, obviously this is not a hard thing for him. Uh, if you can just believe in the creation events and a creation story and account that God is the creator of all, there's an intelligent designer behind this design, um, it's pretty easy for him to direct a fish. So we're going to look at it for like that. Here's the essence, though, of the story, and here's why we're sharing this today, specifically with chapter two. We said this. Sin is essentially running away from God. Sin is basically, I don't need God. I don't want God. I can do life on my own. Whatever God says, I'm going to do the opposite, essentially. Sin is running away from God. Grace is God's pursuit of us. Grace is God saying, I love you too much to let you go. That way. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to chase after you. I'm coming for you. Here is the big idea. The Ninevites needed to experience the grace of God, absolutely, but so did Jonah. So did a religious prophet. Just like you could say the rebellious, wicked, heathen people of Nineveh, just like they needed grace, even more so, a religious guy needs grace. And this is so important for us today. Here's the idea. I think Jonah had a concept of grace. I don't know if he truly experienced grace. I mean, if you look at the text, we, we've read this verse. It's Jonah 4.2. Jonah understands. He goes, God, I know you're gracious. Jonah, I think, had an idea of the grace of God, but I don't know if Jonah thought that he needed the grace of God. Those bad people over there need the grace of God. And God's trying to say, no, Jonah, you need my grace. And so here's what's happening. Chapter 2 is a revelation for Jonah. Chapter 2 is a giant turning point. This is where Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And he has his eureka moment after three days of, God, I needed this grace. I need your grace just like these people. I need your mercy just like these people need your mercy. And so really, Jonah chapter 2, what we're looking at today, it's been called a psalm of Jonah. Uh, he references the psalms like over like three. There's so many references to the psalms here. And so it's like a psalm of Jonah. And here's what God had to use. God had to use a near-death experience for Jonah to get it. God had to bring him very low for him to wake up. And, and many times it is that. That is the way it works. And so the title today is simply a near-death experience. Um, a near-death experience. But the idea for us really is uh, just how do we encounter the grace of God? Listen, Jonah desperately needed the grace of God just like the Ninevites. And, and we too, we might think those people need the grace. No, I need the grace of God. I need the mercy of God in my life. It's not just for a certain type of person. It's for me. I need to encounter and experience and taste and see that the Lord is good. Again, I think for a long time in Jonah's life, in church, please understand what I'm trying to say. Jonah was, was aware of the grace of God, but did he truly experience it? Did he truly understand it? There's a verse, I think, that sets this up well. So I'm going to read it. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. We'll put it up here. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 6, it says, It, the gospel, is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Please listen to this. This is so fascinating to me. Uh, the premise of this is, once you heard, once you really understood, it changed your life. See, he kind of in Colossians 1 makes it uh, understanding, truly understanding the grace of God is synonymous with being born again. When you truly have understood it, wrestled with it, grappled with it, when it hasn't just been a concept or a theology topic that you've read or studied about, when you truly go, oh my goodness, the grace of God is something I need, that's when it begins to change lives. That's what begins to change your life, my life, and it produces fruit is what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. And here's that eureka moment for Jonah. Jonah is in the belly of the fish going, 
oh my gosh, I need this mercy. I need this grace. Not just these evil Ninevites, I do. And church, please again, this is for us. This is for us. I need the grace of God just as much or if not more than anyone else. I need the mercy of God. And Jonah's finally having his revelation of this. And he's finally waking up to this. And it might be somewhat partial, as we'll see, but I think he's finally starting to go, oh, I need this mercy. So let's read Jonah chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. We're just going to read it so you can kind of get a big picture of what is happening. Uh, remember, he just got, it says, swallowed in the belly of the, the fish for three days, three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, then, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, here's like the psalm part kind of. He says, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the, the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Everyone just say amen. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. How lovely. Um, we're going to pray and just explore this uh, more this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much um, for this event for this event that reminds us really again of you, Jesus, of how for three days and three nights you were in the belly of the earth, how, Jesus, you took on our suffering, Jesus, how you met our needs, how you were the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous wrath of God. Lord, we just, we just ask that you'd be here. We ask that you'd speak. God, we ask that we would get a, a, maybe a new and fresh um, understanding of grace in a way that maybe we haven't. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Amen. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever had um, a near-death type of experience, something that kind of woke you up. Um, it's very eye-opening. It really changes your perspective. I've had kind of two in my life, one as a child, one as an adult. As a child, and I won't get into it, but I was in second grade riding my bike across the road, and a, a car hit me, and I flew and landed on top of the car and rolled off. And I just remember all of traffic stopped, police came, fire trucks came, and I just remember them like, how did you not go through the windshield? And I just remember like being a little kid, they're going, you should be dead. Um, and it was one of those moments where you're like, yeah, how did I survive that other than the grace of God? Um, Another story, as an adult, for me, and maybe you remember this, a couple of years ago I shared it, uh, we were out on a boat in the Bahamas, a terrible storm kind of just came upon us, it was a terrible storm, lightning striking near a boat, we were all panicking, waves are crashing in, a guy falls over and his eyes bleeding everywhere, it was, it was horrible, it was literally terrifying. Uh, we started praying out loud, like men, pastors were in the boat with us, and they're all crying, like, God, have mercy on us, I was, I was freaking out, uh, not gonna lie, I was like, okay, this is where I die. Uh, we were watching lightning strike the water, and that day a few people died in Freeport near where we were in the water, it was just a terrible fun day. I remember getting off the boat, and I call my wife, and I'm like, Kimber, is that you? Like, I heard her voice. I'm like, I'm so happy to hear her voice. She's like, what happened? I'm like, I honestly thought I was going to die. She's like, you're such an exaggerator. I'm like, like, no. And I'm like, I'm an exaggerator. But I was like, oh. 
Um, and it really was, honestly and genuinely. And even the guys, when we talk about it still, like we'll laugh once in a while. But remember that day? Um, it was one of those things where you really appreciated life differently. Because I really didn't think, it took about a couple hours just to, you know, we're barely offshore. But it took a couple hours just to get back to land. And you're like, wow, I'm just so appreciative of life. And, and here's the thing. It could be many different things. Maybe you just had a car accident or something. You're like, that could have been way worse than it was. Um, if you're a parent, you feel like half of your job is just to keep your child from killing itself. You know, like, I probably saved my son's life like 42 times. Where it's like, he's choking, or he runs into the road, and you grab him. And you're like, okay, this is our job, I guess. It's just to stop you from self-destruction. Um, and if you've had those moments, it really, again, it, there's so many different ways this can happen. But when you have one of those moments where you go, oh, wow, it does put things in perspective. You know, for me, and I know this might sound strange or almost silly or maybe like, really, that moved you? This week was one of those weeks for me. It was just bizarre. It was weird for me to hear about Kobe Bryant's passing. You're like, I knew he's going to talk about it. I know, it's weird. Um, it's kind of therapy for me. It was really weird. After church on Sunday, I get a text, Kobe died, and you're kind of going, what? Now, if you're like, just I don't get why you're talking about this. Basketball is a really big part of my life. Growing up in Southern California, 20 you know, years of, of playing in Orange County and you know, driving to LA and Kobe's at the mall and your friends are trying to stalk him. And you know, when I was a kid, it's like he was just so, you, you wanted to be him. He was the Dwayne Wade of Southern California. And so it's weird. At 41, you know, he passes away. It's all over you know, Instagram. It's all over the news. Again, being a person who's just so connected to basketball, where God really has used that in my life to just, I think, to cr create a work ethic, to create a hunger and passion and drive. And God has taken that for basketball, moved it towards the gospel and towards just eternal things, I really believe. But it's one of those things where you go, wow, here's a guy, cut down, 41 years old. You feel like his life was just getting started. You know, you feel like he, he has four beautiful daughters. It was so fun watching. I was watching the game where LeBron passed the night before. I go, oh my gosh, LeBron passed Kobe. The next day he passes away. All of it was just so bizarre to me. I honestly am almost like ashamed to say this. I've shed way more tears than I thought I would this week in his passing. I think just being a dad of even a daughter and just kind of hearing just the, the story of that. And I mean, I spent a lot of time just going, God, this, this is very confusing to me. Um, I think we do ask a lot of why questions sometimes. What I think would happen with that event for his friends, and I think honestly for the world, it seemed like the world stopped. Maybe that's not your world, but it seemed like a lot of the world stopped. And I think people began to ask, like, really? Is this all it's about? I mean, you could be cut down your prime, lose it all, everything you work for, everything you've lived for, just lose it all in one moment. Is that life? What is life? I think people have been asking big questions that God wants us to be asking. Not why, but like, am I? Am I ready? Am I ready for this? I mean, we don't know when. We don't know how. I think it really does do a lot. Ecclesiastes 7, it says, It's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living take it to heart. And hear that. It's better to contemplate. It's better to go to the house of mourning. And I think another way is saying, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a comedy club. And that's weird. You're like, no one's going to pay to do that. I know. Uh, but what it does is the living take it to heart. It puts things into perspective. You know, Moses wrote a psalm. I don't know if you guys know that. Moses wrote actually a psalm. It's Psalm 90. And Moses wrote, God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What a beautiful prayer. God, teach me to number my days so that I may have a heart of wisdom. Teach me that life is as a vapor, that it's here one moment and gone the next, and I am not promised tomorrow, and you are not promised tomorrow. And I think what that event did, I think honestly what that, what that event did is it made a lot of people confront something we've been running from, and that is the idea of death. And that is the idea that death is coming for all of us. You know, there's a phrase in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, if you want to look at that. Uh, it says, and the Lord appointed a fish 
The Lord appointed a fish. You'll see that phrase, appointed or prepared. Um, it's actually used many times. The Lord appointed a worm, it says. We'll read that later. The Lord appoints um, a, a bush, essentially a tree. But here's the idea. When I, when I read that, the Lord appointed this fish that was essentially, in Jonah's mind, it was his death. It just brought my mind to that verse in Hebrews 9. In Hebrews 9, 27, it talks about, uh, it's appointed unto men to die once, then the judgment. Listen to that. It's appointed unto men. When I read Jonah's 1, I go, Jonah had an appointment that day with this fish. And the author of Hebrews says, and all of you have an appointment one day with death. Myself included. That there is this thing that kind of looms over all of us. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to address it. We don't want to think about it. Yet the Bible says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of laughter. The living take it to heart. Listen, I, I really do think the Lord uses different things to kind of wake us up. Church, when I, when I walked through this this week, I was like, God, I pray that you wake people up. Wake me up. Not just, you know, the classic cliche, we've got to love our family more and appreciate those around us. Absolutely, that is true. But like, what are we living for? And what if I just build this life just to lose it all? What am I building my life on? Am I building my life on eternal things, things that will last forever? Am I building my life on things that are temp- What is my life? What is this? What are we doing? And so Jonah, listen, Jonah is having his near-death experience, and he's waking up to what's really important. And Jonah sounds uh, hopeless. Jonah sounds fearful. And yet you see God doing this work where he's now speaking of like this redemptive, yet you, yet I, and he has this hope again. So here's how we're going to look at this chapter. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Here's how we're going to break it apart. Uh, We're going to see that Jonah experiences this hope for the hopeless, grace for the guilty, and salvation for the sinner. What Jonah's expressing is there's now actually hope. He finally has hope after three days. Hope for the hopeless, grace for the guilty, and salvation for the sinner. Can we walk through this? Number one, let's look at the first point. Hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. Jonah felt extremely hopeless. You can hear it in his tone and what he's actually saying. Uh, Here's the verses. We'll put it up. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Verse two. Verse three, he says, you cast me into the deep. Verse four, he says, I am driven away from your sight. Verse 5 and 6, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, and at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Forever. The bars closed. Here, Jonah sounds extremely hopeless. He's like, I'm cast from your sight. Uh, I'm at the deepest part of the earth. The bars have closed around me forever. Jonah does sound extremely hopeless. This is how he felt the past three days. I want to point out something very important. Chapter 1, verse 17 ends this way, and chapter 2, verse 1 begins this way. Here's how it ends and begins. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. You catch that? Jonah's there for three days and three nights, and then he prays. Like, Why? What took so long? Do you remember that and go, Jonah, what's your problem, man? Like, was he just stubborn? Was he crazy? I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to repent. Was he depressed? Was he thinking he's dead? Like, what is happening? We really don't know. Uh, But here's what we do know. It took Jonah to completely hit rock bottom before he could ever wake up. He, He had to feel completely the sense of hopelessness, loss. Jonah had to feel completely disregarded before he could ever really appreciate and experience the grace of God. I don't always understand this. Why is it that people have to get to that point? You know, I really think it's true. You don't truly realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Maybe you've heard that. I think that is so true. I think that's happening to Jonah. He goes, I have nothing else. You know, maybe you've heard it this way. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. Here's Jonah. 
He's losing his life, essentially, so he can truly find it. And church, please listen to this. I, I don't know why it always has to happen this way. I don't think it has to always happen this way. I think we can learn from other people's experiences. I don't think we all have to hit rock bottom before we go, oh my gosh, Jesus is all I need. Um, I think we can learn from people like Jonah to go, hey, I don't want to get to that point where I'm in a, the fish's belly before I have to realize that this is all, really what I need. I think we can learn from other people and other experiences, but it seems that the Lord really does use this so often. Sometimes a prayer of mine for people who are wandering from God is like, God, let them hit rock bottom. Like, let them really kind of see what it's like to do life without you. So they kind of experience that hunger. So they actually care about, oh my gosh, I sh I'm living for shallow things, things that are temporary. Sometimes the best thing or what the Lord can use so often is when people experience what Jonah is experiencing, that sense of hopelessness. He goes, I'm driven from your sight. I'm in the gates. I'm in, I'm in Sheol. I'm in hell. We'll talk about that. He really gets this point of just rock bottom. Uh, one commentator said it this way. He says, when you listen to the stories of how saints came to know Christ as Savior, it seems that many people were near rock bottom in their lives when they cried out to the Lord. Someone once asked me why this is so. It is because before we hit rock bottom, we think we can handle being thrown into the sea. Once we actually hit the rough waters and start drowning, once all the things that mask how bad life is are gone, then we are at a place where we must cry out to God or perish. God does this to us so that we will stop lying to ourselves about what is going on in our lives. Wow. Jonah, I think, was very telling himself a lie. I think Jonah was pursuing things he thought that would make him happy, and God's will is going to make his life miserable, and Jonah had to truly hit rock bottom. He had to go to this point of just complete, throw me over, the storm will stop. He's in the fishes, but three days and three nights. Again, why are we as humans so stubborn? Why? I don't, I don't know. But the, the, finally at this point, you kind of see him having like a little shift. But you got you to hear the phrasing. He goes, in verse 2, what did he say? I thought this was interesting. He talks about, he goes, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. He literally thinks, Sheol, just circle that word, Sheol just means place of the dead. Um, some have translated this hell. Um, some, I think the better translation is just this is the, the abiding place of the dead. He, this is the thought. The thought is he either, some people think Jonah actually died. I don't know if that's the case. Some people think that Jonah thinks he's dead. Or basically Jonah said this is, this is as good as death. If this is a whale, if this is a mammal, uh, you think about the body temperature, it's hot, it's sticky, it's gross, the smell the fish, the rotting flesh, the darkness. Think about hell, outer darkness, rotting flesh. You think about what he's experiencing. He goes, I'm in hell. I'm literally dead. This is terrible. I'm in Sheol. I'm, I'm crying out to you, and I'm, I think he thinks he's dead. He thinks he's driven away from the presence of God. I mean, I think that might be the best description of hell. When someone goes, what is hell? I think just being driven away from the joy, from the, the true, the presence of God where you can take in who he is, his nature, his character, and in enjoyment. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way. I thought it was very well said. He said, heaven is the ever-increasing further up, further into joy, into God, into life. Hell is the opposite of that. It's an everlasting movement away from God. Think about this. God is infinitely good. God is loving. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is everything our heart is desired and craved. So to reject God, you get the exact opposite of God, which is infinite pain, suffering, misery. Jonah's at this point where he goes, my, I'm literally in Sheol. I'm, I'm crying. You've been driven me from your sight, God. You know, maybe this is what God is using to say, Jonah, this is what the Ninevites are walking through. Jonah, I need you to experience the weight of this so you can understand what the Ninevites will be going through if they don't hear this message of salvation. 
like Jonah maybe needs to relate a little bit to the people he's so bitter against. Uh, one a guy named Warren Wearsby said this, God was reminding him of what the people of Nineveh were going through in their sinful condition. They were helpless and hopeless. Maybe this was that, God just reminding him, hey, the people you're running from, this is where they're at without, without me, apart from me. Maybe we as Christians, you guys, need to kind of sense and feel, what do people, what will people experience if they don't know Jesus? You know, um, I think it was, I forget the name, I think it's William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, who basically talked about this idea. He's like, I wish I could take all of my employees and then hang them over hell. I think he said for like 45 minutes so that people would get a perspective of what the message is we're preaching and what they're being saved from. I want people to understand what it is they're coming out of being saved from. I want Christians to know, like, this is where the end of all will lead. This is so interesting. You know, this is counterculture, by the way. Your culture, think about this. The idea is Jonah is finally seeing his depravity. He's finally seen his sin. I think the message today is, hey, you do you, man. You know, there's no such thing as right or wrong. All these morals, they're kind of constructed by man, and there's no such thing as what is good and what is evil. I mean, you just do you. What will make you happy? Don't let anyone tell you that what you're doing is wrong or sinful. And this is, and they'll even say the Bible's oppressive this way. The Bible tells you you're sinful. That's very oppressive. How dare you believe that? And here's the thing. If you really don't understand how, how broken our life is, how depraved we are, you can never truly again to appreciate the grace of God until you really understand how messed up we are. Until you really see, until I really see how broken my heart is, I don't know if I'll ever truly appreciate the grace that God offers. Because when people try to tell you, you're good, you're good, you don't need God, you don't need grace, you don't think this is something, Jonah's finally seen, oh my gosh, I need this. I'm in the depths of Sheol. I'm driven away from God's sight. And now here's what I'm trying to point out though. You sense this hopelessness that he's experienced in three days, but on day three, he has a sense of hope. Please listen, church. He's now talking about hope at this moment. Listen to some of the verses where he says, he speaks of hope. We'll keep reading. Uh, It's Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. He says, he answered, and he answered me. He said, God, you heard my voice. Verse 6 says, yet you have brought brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Here's what I want you to see. He's saying, I feel like I'm in hell. I feel like I'm cast away from God, and yet you've answered my prayer. You've heard me. In verse 6, he says, yet you have brought me up my life from this pit. I want you to kind of just see this transition that's taking place. He goes, all hope was lost, and yet you're going to bring me out of this pit. He says, like, past tense, you have brought me out. But he has this hope of you're going to bring me out. You know, here's the idea. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, you and I were dead in our sins. We were walking. We were far. We were far from God, doing life our own, our own way. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy and abundant in his love towards us. The idea is for us is, yeah, you and I are in the same boat. You are in this no pun intended, but you guys, you and I were in the same spot, but God who is rich in mercy. He says, yet, God, you have brought me out of this. God, you answered my prayer. I, church, I don't think we can ever underestimate or undervalue the fact that God answers our prayers. Do you, think, do you not know where he's saying? He goes, I feel like I'm in hell, and yet you heard me. I feel like I've been cast out of your presence, and God, you, you hear my prayer. Do you know that Jesus hears our prayers? that Jesus is waiting for this cry of repentance, that God was waiting for this moment where he says, I just give up, I'm done, I'm crying out to you, God, I need you, and God's like, I hear you. You know, it's so sad sometimes when you hear people say, well, I guess all we have left now, all we can do now is, is pray. It's like, well, like, I wonder what that means to God. Like, all we can do now is pray. That's like the first and only thing we can do. It took him a few days to get that. But like, this is something where he goes, God, you heard me. I'm honestly amazed when, when we get together and pray and have like little prayer meetings and you hear like all these prayers at once, and you're like, God, you are just, you're incredible. The fact that you can have hundreds all over the world, thousands, millions of people praying, and God can just hear them as if it's just one-on-one. 
God can just take it in and respond. It's absolutely beautiful. See, Jonah's going, um, I was without hope. I was in hell. I was cast out forever. Yet you have delivered me from this pit. But God, who is rich in mercy, in his great love towards us, has saved us. While I was running from God, while I was far from God, while you said, I want nothing to do with God, I want nothing to do with church, I want nothing to do with Christians, it's a bunch of junk, and God is in pursuit of you and says, I love you, and I'm going to pursue you, and I'm always going to pursue you. And I would say, listen, like Jonah, please relent. Please don't hit rock bottom before you relent. Please don't think you need to get to this point where you're like, my li- I feel like I'm in hell. Please don't, ha- you don't have to get to that point. And if God has to get to that point to wake you up, to save you, then let him do that. Because I would rather have you in heaven with Jesus than just in that point of where you're enjoying your sin. We have to, we see that Jonah just has this great turning point. So listen, there's hope for the hopeless. But number two is this, there's grace for the guilty. There's grace for the guilty. Can we read the verse? It's actually verse four. Verse four. Two verses I really want to point out, verse four and verse eight. Uh, He says, then, verse four, then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again to your holy temple. Circle holy temple. He says this phrase again in a different way in verse 7. He says, yet, uh, in verse 7, he says, my prayer went up to you into your holy temple, your holy temple. Here's the thing. Jonah's in, in this fish. He doesn't know which way is north, south, east, or west. He's like in the middle of the ocean. He's like, what? But he's like, I'm looking towards your holy temple. So what is he really doing? This word look means to stare, to gaze, to look upon, to fix your eyes upon, to not take your eyes off of. He's saying, I'm looking to your temple. Why the temple? What is the temple? Let's talk about the temple. What is the temple? The temple was a place of sacrifice. Please follow along with me in this. When I say God offers grace for the guilty. Jonah's going, I'm looking to the temple right now in this moment. He can't really look at it. He's in a fish outer darkness, because I'm looking towards your temple. Why the temple? Uh, The temple had two very important rooms. One was called the holy place. One was called the holy of holies. In the temple, you had the holy place with, you know, you had the the brazen, uh, you had the candlestick, you had the table of showbread. It was a place where priests would come and basically do their duties and minister in. Then there's this other room called the holy of holies. There's a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Behind the veil, as you guys know, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's only one man, the high priest, one day of year, Yom Kippur, where the man could enter in behind the veil and actually be in the Holy of Holies. And this was on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. So the high priest, one day a year, he'd have to carry this basin filled with blood from an animal sacrifice. He would come behind the veil, and if he was worthy, he would live, and he would take this little branch thing and basically sprinkle blood onto the Ark of the Covenant, onto the mercy seat. Now, we have like a little cheesy picture of the Ark of the Covenant, because I just don't want you to envision it a little bit. Uh, but the idea of the Ark of the Covenant was inside was the law, was the commandments of God. Now, on top of this was this little golden slab with those angels' wings pointing at each other. This was called the mercy seat. This is how God designed it in Leviticus and Exodus, how God designed the Ark of the Covenant. The whole point of this was, God, you are holy, I am not. I cannot keep your law. This law defines you. It's something we're aiming for, something we're trying to keep, but we fall short of. So in order for me to enter into your presence, I need blood. In order for me to be in your presence, I need a sacrifice on my behalf. And that's why they take blood and they'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat. It's basically where he would atone for the people's sins. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Jonah is saying, I'm looking to the place of sacrifice. I'm looking to the place where sins are atoned for. I'm looking to the place, God, where I can actually find peace with you again and enter into your presence, and it's only through the temple. Guys, God cannot just wink at sin. God cannot just be like, boys will be boys and prophets will be prophets. Like, he can't just do that. God has to punish sin. God is holy. God is just. 
So God must punish sin. So let me say this. When we talk about grace, know this. Grace is costly. Grace is never free. Grace is never cheap. In order for us to enter into God's presence, it costs God a lot. Grace was not cheap for us. Grace was not cheap for them. An innocent animal had to die on their behalf. Grace, entering into God's presence, was not free and it was not cheap. And it cost God a lot. And here's why I'm trying to bring this up. Uh, Jesus, for us, and let's think about this today. Jesus in John chapter 2. He was standing in front of the temple, and Jesus said this, this phrase, and it made everyone very angry. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. People got furious, and they thought, destroy this temple, the temple we just finished, the temple where we encountered the presence of God. And Jesus, it says, no, he was referring to his body. Destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. Here's the idea for you and I, for, for us today. Uh, we too look toward the temple. We too, build, our temple is Jesus. We look toward him. See, the idea is this. There's good news and bad news, obviously. The bad news is we could never come before God. The bad news is sin must be punished. The bad news is, is sin is costly. But see, here's the good news. Jesus paid for the sin. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is the one we come to. We have access to God because of the temple, because of the body of Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection. You see, the temple was a reminder that sin must be paid for, but sin has been paid for. See, Jesus is saying, listen, sin must be paid for, but I'm going to be the one who pays the price for sin. Sin is costly. Grace is costly. Grace is not cheap. And I want us to see this. Jonah goes, I look to your temple. I, my eyes are fixed on it because I know I can be right with you again because of that temple, because of that place. I don't think knowing, though, that the temple really speaks of Jesus. Jesus is like, again, don't destroy that temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up and it offended everyone. Jesus is the one we look to, you guys. I look to Jesus for my cleansing, for my healing, for my freedom, for my forgiveness. I look to the temple, the one who gave his body for us, the sacrifice who was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is how I have access to God. Jesus is how you have access to God. It is the blood of Jesus. Amen. And Jonah's like, I look to your temple. I'm guilty. He, notice that phrase. He goes, I've been driven from your sight. That's a terrible phrase, by the way. Was Jonah driven from God's sight? No. Jonah left it. He ran from it. And I think he has like a still broken perspective. I was, God, you drove me away. He has this guilty heart, this guilty conscience, but he goes, but I'm looking towards your temple. But I'm looking to the place of sacrifice. And then Jonah says something very profound in verse 8. And, I, and this is kind of like verse 8 and verse 9 is the crux. I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse 8. What does verse 8 say or how does it say it? Verse 8 says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Jonah is now experiencing something. He's going, oh my goodness, those who serve idols, those who give their lives to these idols, forsake the mercy of God. That word mercy, if you were to uh, circle it, it's a very interesting word. It's the Hebrew word kesed. It just means your covenantal love, a love for people that don't deserve it. Essentially, it's this word mercy or grace. So he's saying, those who serve idols forsake your grace. They can exchange the grace of God for something, that, for something else, for something less, for the idols they serve and they worship. I want you to see that this is one of those verses that is, I think, incredibly eye-opening. When I read this, I had to stop and go, wait, I can actually forfeit the grace of God for an idol. I can forsake the grace of God for things in my life that I'm putting in place of God. Remember this, in James 4, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. Let me just say this, guys. When it comes to the gospel of grace, when it comes to Jesus, God is not saying, bad people are out, good people are in. That's not what God says. God is saying, uh, the humble are in and the proud are out. If you want to be in, be, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. God resists the, the, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who does God actually resist? God resists, resists pride people who say, I don't need this. I don't need this. And Jonah's finally getting it. He's going, oh my gosh, I've been serving other things other than you, and I've been forsaking your mercy. I've been forsaking your grace. Listen, he's been putting something in place of God. 
See, again, this is not just idol worship, like these pagan idols, they're worshiping little things. This can be anything. He goes, God, something is taking your place in my life, and that is making me miss out on the mercy and grace of God. So what is that? What is the thing right now in your life and in my life that you're putting in place of God that is making you miss out on the grace of God? What is the thing you're worshiping or serving or giving your life to that is keeping you from the grace of God? Because I think that this is something that we all wrestle with. My heart is constantly putting things in place of Jesus. And I'm constantly have to dethrone those things and put Jesus back on the throne. And he's going, the people who live for these idols, live for other things, forsake your mercy. One writer said this way about idols. I thought it was so profound in a book called um, Counterfeit Gods. He simply said this, an idol is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If I could just have that, then I'll have meaning and value. Then I'll have everything I need. He goes, that is what you're worshiping. That is your idol. And if you worship that and you put that in your life, you're forsaking the mercy and grace of God. You're forsaking the covenantal love of God that God offers. This love that you can never earn this love that you don't deserve, that God is not obligated to give. You see, I think the best definition of grace is grace is not something you deserve, and it's not something God is obligated to give. I don't deserve the grace of God, and God is by no means obligated to show me the grace of God. Grace is received. Grace is not earned. I just receive it freely. I hear, remember Colossians 1? When you understand the grace of God, it produces change and fruit and life. And you just go, God, I received this. I realized my life was a mess. I only needed, I, all I needed was you to save me, to pull me out of this pit. But God, but God, this is truly what my heart needs. This is truly what my heart wants for. And please listen again. People will miss out on the grace of God for some sort of thing or idol or thing that they're living for. And they miss it and they forfeit the grace of God. And this is, please, church, do not miss this. My question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it forfeiting the grace of God for what? For what? For that relationship that you think will satisfy? Is it worth it for that, you know, app that you just cannot stop going to and pulling up? I mean, is it, is it truly worth it? He says, you're, for, you're forfeiting, you're forsaking the grace of God for some sort of idol. And Jonah's going, I get it now. That's what I've been doing. I've been forsaking the mercy, the kessid, the covenantal love of God for something. For him, it might have been self-righteousness. It might have been comfort. I want comfort over this hard mission. And God's like, give that up. Give up, give up your idol of comfort. Give up your idol of self-righteousness. Give it up for me. It is so worth it. You know, I think of the story in Luke 12. Jesus gives this wonderful parable. He goes, hey, there's a really wealthy guy. He had fields. He started harvesting his fields. He started building bigger barns and bigger barns, and he kept saving his money, and he had a great retirement plan. And then Jesus ends and says, you fool, don't you know that your life will be taken from you tonight? That you live your life building and building and building, but it's like you're building on things that are not eternal, things that are temporary, things that will pass away. And he goes, don't you know? And that's why I just think, this, like, was it worth it? Was it worth it? How do we build our lives on the most important thing? How do we build our lives on Jesus? the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Do not forsake the mercy or grace of God for an idol. See, here's the thing. He's like, God, you offer grace for the guilty, and that's me. I'm looking to your temple. I'm looking to your grace. It's not just the Ninevites. It's not just the people I think who are bad. It's me, the religious person. I, I need the grace of God. I need this just as much as anyone else. Now, here's the last thing, and this is the crux of the whole text. It's Jonah 2.9. And in Jonah 2, 9, he, we see this. He, God, he's going, God, you offer salvation for the sinners. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. What does he say? How does he end? He says this. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. This is like the summary verse of the Bible. 
Everyone, what's the Bible about? Salvation is of the Lord. Could you save yourself? Nope. Could you ever be drowning and going, I can save myself from drowning? Nope. Salvation is of the Lord. Listen to this. Uh, this verse is the key verse in the Bible. This is the summary verse of the Bible. This is the theme of the Bible. This is the whole Bible boiled down into one verse right there. This is what Jesus' whole ministry and message was about to show us salvation is of the Lord. Is, this is what it's about. That you and I could never, I could never do anything for me to save myself. I need someone outside of me. Someone outside of me to look at my circumstances and save me. Jonah finally gets it. I was in hell. I was in Sheol. My life was, God. I was driven from your sight, God. I was hopeless. And I realized that salvation is of you. Only you could ever save me. I could never save myself. I could never be good enough to save myself. Only salvation can come from you. And I love what he says in the first part, and we'll go back to this, because I will pay what I have vowed. That is an amazing sentence. I will pay what I have vowed. And he still knows salvation is not of him, but of the Lord. I think it's great. He goes, I'm going to pay what I vowed. I really do wonder if you've ever, have you ever vowed anything to God that has gone unpaid? God, I, I give you my life. I'm like, okay, well, I'll give you some of my life. God, I give you the, okay, I give you part of this relationship. Like, what is it? He goes, God, whatever it is I vow to, I'm going to give to you. Guys, if there's something you vow to God, I would highly encourage you pay it. Jonah says, I will pay what I have vowed. I love that. I will pay what I have vowed. I will pay what I have vowed. But here's the point. Even if he pays what he vows, salvation is still of the Lord. Even if he does these great, and even if he's a man of his word, he still did not save himself. Jonah's in a fish. There's absolutely no way Jonah can save himself. It is beyond himself to save himself. Even if he could somehow get out of the fish through the front or the back, which would be terrible. He's like, I'm in the middle of the ocean. I just swim to the top. He goes, salvation's of you, God. It's completely of the Lord. I could never do this myself. It has to come from you. It has to come from above. And this is crazy. I know this is one of those things we wrestle against. And you're like, Josiah, do you know what you're saying? Yeah, salvation's of the Lord. I mean, I agree. I agree with the Bible. I agree with this thought. I agree that I could never, I could never pull myself out of hell. I could never rescue myself. There's been, there's been so much sin that I have done against you and you only, God, have I sinned. I need someone outside of me to save me, and that is Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, salvation is here, Yeshua. Salvation has arrived. Salvation has come in the person of Jesus. Jonah, again, that person who was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Jesus, three days, three nights in the belly of the earth, saying, yeah, that's me. I'm going to pay for the sin of the world by my sacrifice, by being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. If you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. Do you believe this? I believe this. This is something we look for, long to, I look to Jesus. Again, here's what we see. He's gazing his eyes on the temple. He's looking to Jesus. Listen, church, this is the whole point. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. The person say, my eyes are fixed on you and you only. I could never be good enough. I could never do anything. I could never say enough. I could never, I look to you and you only. And this is where real transformation begins to happen. This is where real change can finally take place. It's when you kind of, you, not kind of, when you fully realize you could never, you could never save yourself. There's too much, I mean, we could never, I could never, I need someone outside of me. How offensive is this, you guys? Imagine there's someone in the middle of the ocean drowning, and you throw them like a life preserver, and they take it, and they come in the boat, and they're like, oh, I did it, I saved myself. You're like, what? Like, we do that. I pour myself up, I clean up my life. It's like, I could never. God's salvation is of you and you, to you alone. You get the glory and honor and praise. You did this. I received it. I received it. I received this grace. You're not obligated to give it. I don't deserve it, but I receive it. Thank you for this grace, God. I received this grace that you've given. Salvation is of you, God. I received that. I just received it. Here's what's interesting to me. A lot of people point this out. If you look at verse 1 through 10, notice this. Jonah never clearly confesses sin to the point where he goes, and God, I disobeyed. And He never gets specific with his sin. He's like, I was outcast, I was abandoned, 
He never gets specific, but God was still gracious enough to save him. I'm just saying I think God's, God's grace, I think I, I don't fully understand or comprehend how incredible it is. I want to end with this verse, and then we're going to do something. Here's the verse. It says, or this quote, God releases Jonah from the fish, even though, as, we will become ob- as it will become obvious soon, his repentance is only partial, yet the merciful God patiently works with us, flawed and clueless though we are. God's grace patiently works with us. Here's what we're going to do. This is a perfect, I think, weekend for us to slow down and get specific with our sin. Let's learn from Jonah. Let's remember Jesus's body and blood, his body that was broken for me, his blood that was shed for my sins. I want to just take a second. We are going to end with communion, and I really hope this can be just a sweet and intimate time where you go, God, I am Jonah. Remember what I shared last week? On the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, Jews still read the book of Jonah. This book is still read to this day by Jews on the day, like today, when, or not today, but when Yom Kippur happens, they will read the book of Jonah, and know what they say? They say, we are Jonah. And this is what we do. We confess this. We say, God, we are Jonah. We ran from you. God, we, we run from your grace. And here I am to finally surrender over to you, to say, I'm no longer going to run. I'm no longer going to think I can do it. My life is better. My way is better. My will is better. God, I surrender to you. So listen, we're going to partake of Jesus' body, of Jesus' blood, and we're going to partake and remembrance of him. This is something we do in remembrance of Jesus. This is something we do where we say, Jesus, thank you for your body that you gave for us. Thank you for your blood that you shed for our forgiveness of sins. Jesus, this, this speaks of you. This represents you. And we do this to remember the fact that our sins were atoned for and paid for by Jesus. Salvations of the Lord. Salvations of the Lord. When you take communion, know you're declaring salvations of the Lord. When I take communion, when you take it, I'm saying, God, I could never save myself. It needed to be you. Thank you for the sacrifice. I look to your temple. I look to your body. I look to your temple for cleansing, for healing, for restoration, that Jesus, you said your temple was destroyed, but in three days later, it rose up. And we look to him. Amen? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. We're going to have some people pass out communion. I'm going to ask that you take it at your seat. If you believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, this is for you. If you have not yet believed that or confessed that, let me say this, you can believe that today. Trust in Jesus today. Take it. Take it. Partake. Say, Jesus, you gave your body for me so I could live. I take this cup in remembrance that you shed your blood for my sins. Take it today. Believe in Jesus today at this moment. I'd say take it. You're celebrating the death and life of Jesus on your behalf and my behalf. So listen, they're going to pass it out. As you pray over it, as you get specific with your sin today, as you say, Jesus, I've been running from you in this way. Listen, confess that, talk to him, and take and remember salvation is of you, Lord. Salvation is of you, Lord. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take some communion and have some worship. Father, we thank you. We look to you right now. We celebrate you right now. God, this is one of those things, one of those stories where it just reminds us, God, that um, sadly sometimes we have to be at this complete loss, a complete sense of depravity, that we've ran from you, that God, we've tried to do life our own way, and we end up in Sheol. We end up in this place of misery. And God, we're just here today to say, look, no longer, no longer do we want to run No longer do we want to flee. God, we're here to pursue you, to look to you. So Jesus, I ask as we take, as we partake and remember your body and remember your blood that was shed for our sins, God, we look to you and say, thank you, salvations of you. I could never do this alone. I could never do this. So Jesus, we're here to remember you, to thank you. God, be present, be here. God, let us get specific as we confess our sin, bring healing. God, I pray that people today would be released from different vices, from different things in their past that still kind of hold them back, that as they look to the temple, as they look towards your body, 
that, God, they'd be freed. And remember, there is grace for the guilty. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that there's grace for me. Thank you that there's salvation for someone like me. So we look to you. We praise you now in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to come forward and pass out communion. Take and eat when you are ready.